Welcome back to Missing. I am Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic today, Tim. I hope the listeners out there are doing as fantastic as I'm doing. Uh, I want to keep it short and sweet. I don't want to keep uh, prattling on during my part of this intro because I can't wait for the people to hear our wonderful guest, a return guest. So before we get to her, though, Tim, how are you? I am doing great. Thanks a lot for asking. And yeah, I'm excited to introduce this conversation. This conversation is pretty serious. Uh, We're talking about domestic violence awareness with a fantastic woman named Catherine Shellman. Catherine is the mom of Tiffany Perry, who was very sadly murdered in 2010 by her ex-boyfriend. Since then, Catherine has really made it her mission to bring domestic violence awareness out from the darkness and into the area where people can talk about this. And so that's what we're doing here today. We're, we're talking with Catherine very openly about domestic violence awareness and the murder of her daughter, Tiffany. As we mentioned, Catherine has done some advocacy work on this cause, and she really developed a bit of a presentation. And so she actually sent us some clips. Some of them are audio. Some of them are video. So they are put into this episode. So if you're listening to this, you'll understand what's happening. But if you're watching it on YouTube, that is maybe even a better way to consume this one. And there are parts of this conversation that are a bit of a revelation because we get into the layers of domestic abuse and how gradual this happens to individuals and how family members can't quite see it right away because of how gradual and subtle all of these markers are. And there's that layer. There's the law enforcement layer. This conversation is going to leave you wanting to do something. Yeah. And Catherine has given out her email address. It's Shellman at gmail.com. If you find yourself in a situation like we're discussing here, she can be a resource to you. She's got a nonprofit. And if you yourself are in a domestic violence situation, help is available. There is a national domestic violence hotline that you can call. It's 1-800-799-7233. And we also just want to give a general warning to our listeners um, that this might be disturbing to some people. Okay, so we're going to take a quick break for a commercial, and we'll be right back with Katherine Shellman. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome back to the podcast, Catherine Shellman. How are you tonight? I'm doing well. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me on tonight. I appreciate it. Yeah, we appreciate you coming back to speak with us. We had you on a few weeks ago with Jason Watts in regards to Jason Landry's disappearance and the excellent work that the two of you are doing to try to bring answers to the Landry family. And I think the first time, the second you, I'm not kidding here, the second you started speaking, I texted Tim and I'm like, she's got to come on like she has to come on to speak about what her other advocacy work is and 
I, a handful of guests do that where it's like you start talking and it's like this revelation of like, wow, this is, this is a good person here. So uh, thank you for being in our world. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. I appreciate you very much. And yeah, you never know until you start talking to someone what you might find out. So yeah, I, what we're going to talk about tonight, I'm, I'm excited to be talking about it because I am an advocate. And so, yeah, hopefully we can reach a lot of people. Absolutely. Yeah. And you've been searching for Jason Landry, who is a missing person. And we had you on recently, along with another advocate, Jason Watts. And uh, we're speaking about the disappearance of Jason Landry. Um, But tonight we are speaking about something a little bit even more personal uh, for you. Um, It's about your daughter. Yes. Jason Landry uh, was a Texas State student. And so was my daughter, Tiffany. Tiffany was 23 and she was in her final semester working on a business management degree. And Tiffany found herself in an abusive relationship. Uh, When she broke up with her abuser, two weeks later he shot and killed her and then turned the gun on himself and took his own life. So that's kind of how that all tied together when we were talking about how um, I came to be involved in missing person Jason Landry. It's because he was a fellow Bobcat like my daughter was. A fellow Bobcat is? A Texas State University. That's their, I'm sorry, that's their mascot is the Bobcat. <laughs> okay, I figured. We're in the Northeast. We don't, the uh, the that's college right. sports isn't isn't as big. So when you said a fellow Bobcat, I'm like, I think that's like a mascot. <laughs> but sorry. maybe that's just a term of endearment. I don't know. <laughs> oh, well, it's that too. But no, that I'm sorry. That's the Texas State University. Bobcat is their mascot. I didn't. I didn't mean to make light of the uh, the the. No, no, it's all statement. Good. You you said that your daughter Tiffany was in a abusive relationship. How long had the relationship been going on? You know, and I'm. I'm thank you for asking that because Tiffany was in the relationship for five years. She was 18 when she met Kenny. And if I could just back up a little bit, a lot of people ask, well, why would you date a jerk? Well. It's not like on date number one, an abuser goes, hey, I'm going to be really cool and honorable and really good to you for six months, a year, two years, and then I'm going to slowly start grooming you and start um, making you feel like you need to accept the things that I tell you and the things I do to you, you know, and then I'm going to kill you. I mean, if it was that obvious on date number one, who would have a second date, right? So it's not that obvious. And so uh, when we say, why would someone date an abuser or why wouldn't someone leave an idiot? Well, it's not that easy and we'll get into that. But if you wouldn't mind, please, Tim, can you go to Tight Knit Family, that photo? Because I just kind of want to let people know that, you know, Tiffany came from a very uh, close family. She had one sister and lots of aunts and uncles and cousins and There was no violence in our family. There was no drug abuse. There was no alcohol abuse. There was no outside forces that would cause, you know, any kind of um, reason for someone to go into a, a dating or domestic violence relationship. So here you can see this is Tiffany in the top left. You know, she was about 18 months old and Uh, Yeah, every holiday we spent together, we kind of hopped around from house to house, from her dad's family to my family. And again, we were just, we were really very close. Tiffany was working at a restaurant called the Texas Cattle Company. It's a, a steakhouse in Cedar Park, Texas. And she was a hostess there. 
And Kenny came in with his father one night. They just started talking and they hit it off. And I remember Tiffany coming home that evening going, Mom, you know, I met this really, really nice guy. And he gave me his phone number. And, you know, she talked about the fact that they both wanted to go on the first date. This is Tiffany at age 18. I mean, she, I look back now and it's like, my God, she was considered an adult by you know, community standards or whatever, but she's, she's just so young. But that's when she met Kenny. And the first date that they decided to go on or that Tiffany agreed to go on um, was to see a movie because she's like, Mom, I feel like it's a public place and, you know, uh, other people will be around. And so, you know, I don't really know him yet, but this will be a good, good starting place, a good first date. And so I know she took it really slow and, and a lot of her friends loved Kenny. When Tiffany went on that first date, little did she know she was going to meet her abuser and eventual murderer. Kenny was a cage fighter, you know, one of those ultimate fighters. I, I think they call it cage fighting. Um, he, he just was in, I guess, you know, really great shape. Um, that's what he did. It was something fun for him. It was a sport to him, and it is for a lot of people. And I want to talk about the fact that in abusive relationships, abusers start very slowly. If you can just go to the one that says, are you wearing that? He knew I thought it was weird. He, he wouldn't let her go out wearing certain things. We would be ready to leave the house and he'd say, are you wearing that? He wouldn't say, take that off. Or, you know, he would just look at her and say, are you wearing that? What this young lady is saying, this is uh, Leslie O'Hara. She was one of Tiffany's very best friends. And what she's talking about here is that when everyone first met Kenny, they thought he was the nicest guy. They would be out shooting pool or something, and Kenny would show up and be like, I'm here to take Tiffany out to dinner. I know she's on a tight budget, but I want to take her to a really classy joint, whatever. Um, when in actuality, what he was doing was pulling Tiffany away from her friends. And that's one of the first things that abusers do. They isolate their victims so that they can remove their uh, security net. What Leslie was saying there is that Kenny started out saying things like, are you wearing that? He wouldn't say, take that off. I don't like that and I don't want you to wear it. He would just say things like, are you wearing that? And so that's another little piece of the puzzle as to how victims get um, groomed into being in this abusive situation. One evening, uh, it was actually Tiffany's younger sister's 21st birthday. And Tiffany decided that she would take her birthday down to 6th Street, which is downtown Austin. And on the weekends, they block off either end of 6th Street, so it's walking traffic only. And there's every kind of place you can imagine. Fine dining there, there's um, karaoke clubs, there's jazz clubs, there's all different. You just walk from club to club. And um, it was Becky's 21st birthday, so Tiffany's like, I'm going to take her downtown. They were out until about 3 o'clock in the morning. And I have a video clip and an audio clip of Tiffany having called Kenny and she's saying to him, you keep calling me, uh, I'm okay, I hope you're okay with the fact that I'm at home now, I'll call you tomorrow, I'll tell you what I was wearing. Hey baby, it's me, it's like 3.20 in the morning and you're still text messaging me some pictures 
Um, I just talked to you and my phone cut out for some reason. So I was just calling you back. Um, I'm about to go to bed, so just let me know you're okay and that you're comfortable with the fact that I'm at home now and everything went well. And I'll tell you about my night tomorrow. Saw what I wore. After Tiffany's murder, as part of the police report, they had gotten both Tiffany and Kenny's phones and got the messages and voicemails and all that off of it. And apparently Kenny had been calling and texting and calling and texting Tiffany all night long. Where are you? What are you wearing? What club are you at? Who are you with? Like constant peppering her with calls and and, um, texts, messages and everything. So let's talk a minute about stalking because that is another form of abuse. You never have time to yourself when you're a victim. It doesn't matter where you go, what you do. The victim is always afraid and always looking over their shoulder. Is my abuser going to be there? You know, even if you're doing something simple like going to the library or having lunch with a good friend, you're always afraid that that abuser is going to show up and make a ruckus or embarrass you or drag you out or whatever. So in this particular Katz restaurant, Katz was a restaurant on 6th Street. It's a New York deli. And one afternoon, Tiffany went there with a friend of hers named Keith, and they were eating lunch. They were there for an extended period of time. And as they walked out of the restaurant, there's a guy with his motorcycle up on the sidewalk, like looking into the restaurant. And he's got his helmet on. Tiffany recognizes the motorcycle and says, oh my God, Keith, you're about to meet my ex-boyfriend, Kenny, because she had broken up with him several times. On average, victims break up with their abusers anywhere from seven to 12 times before it's a permanent breakup. So we walk into Kat's restaurant, have an extended lunch. We're there for almost two hours. And as we are leaving, she's walking in front of me, um, And I could tell that she was talking to somebody, but I didn't see immediately who she was talking to. And as she's walking along, she turns around and says, you're about to meet my ex-boyfriend. As she's walking towards him, he's taking off his helmet, and she says to him, have you been here the whole time? And he shrugged his shoulders, kind of acknowledging that he had been there the whole time. Kenny takes off his helmet and says, um, what are you doing? And Tiffany says, I'm having lunch with my friend Keith. Tiffany asked him, have you been here the whole time, the whole hour, hour and a half that we've been here? And he just kind of shrugged his shoulders like, yeah, confirming he had been there the whole time and with his motorcycle up on the sidewalk looking into the window. So just scary stuff like that. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. I mentioned earlier that abusers like to isolate their victims. Well, at one point in their relationship, Kenny had convinced Tiffany that, you know, none of your friends like our relationship, your parents don't like our relationship, let's move out of town, let's turn over a new leaf, let's start over somewhere, it's you and me against the world, blah, blah, blah. So he got her to move to Las Vegas. And his dad had previously moved to Las Vegas and had gotten a job and had leased a large house, like a three-bedroom house, and then decided he couldn't afford it. So unbeknownst to Tiffany, the plan was that Kenny was going to take Tiffany, the two of them would move out to Las Vegas, and they would pay for the remainder of the lease for this big three-bedroom house that his father had rented. 
I started to notice while Tiffany was in Las Vegas that our communications got fewer and farther in between. Additionally, I knew that the only time she would call me would be either if she was on her way driving to work or to college, on her way back or out walking the dog. She would never call me when Kenny was around. And I knew he was a jerk. I just, I didn't know the depth of how horrible he was. But, you know, it was quite frustrating. And I had told Tiffany, if you ever need anything, at the drop of a hat, I'm there. No, no, mom, everything's good. It's fine. We're, you know, everything's going great. Well, one night Tiffany called me in absolute tears. And I couldn't understand what she was saying to me. And they had been there about a year, year and a half. And I said, baby, slow down. I, what's happening? Are you okay? Well, it turned out that a woman had walked into Tiffany's work and said to her, I know who you are, Tiffany. And you've been seeing my boyfriend, Kenny. And every time your mom comes out to visit you in Vegas for the weekend or whatever, and you guys are in a hotel, I'm at your house. And she proceeded to tell Tiffany, this is the shampoo that you use. This is where the dog bed is, you know, describing the entire house. And so Tiffany was, of course, incredibly upset. I'm in love with this guy. I followed him here to Las Vegas. Um, he told me he would help me pay for school, but I'm holding down two jobs. I'm trying to put myself through school and help pay for this house. And anyway, I said to her, baby, don't, don't go home from work. I'll book a room for us at one of the hotels. I'm leaving right now. I'm on my way. So I got the last ticket out of San Antonio to Vegas that night. I didn't take anything with me. It didn't matter. I was going to my baby. So when I got there, we called the police and I said, here's what's happening. We need to get my daughter's important documents. Actually, at first I was like, let's just get you home. But she said, you know, I if I leave him this time, it's going to be a permanent breakup and I need all of my important papers and all the things that are important to me because I don't want to ever have to deal with them again. So that I agreed, okay, fine. If this makes it a final breakup, let's do this. So we called the police. The police agreed to sit there for 20 minutes while we removed Tiffany's things from her apartment. And the whole time Tiffany was gathering her things, Kenny was following her around and I was in between him and Tiffany. He was trying to get to her and the cops were just kind of watching this go on. But I was standing between him and Tiffany every time he tried to maneuver to get closer to her. And she would pick something up and he'd, he'd be crying, crying, no, that's not yours, that's mine. And then he'd cry, why are you leaving me? I didn't do anything wrong. That's mine, put it down. I mean, it was just the strangest behavior. It was like a light switch off and on. So finally, we threw everything in the truck. We, I had rented a trailer. We put a car in the trailer. We got on the truck and took the long way home back to Texas, back roads and everything, just in case he would follow us. Well, we got Tiffany in an apartment. Uh, my husband and I had a small ranch in Wimberley, which is just about an hour outside of Austin. And we put her to work out there. We, you know, let her paint some horse stalls and we paid her like 15 bucks an hour just to keep her busy, give her something to do that summer, keep her with us, you know, uh, make sure Kenny was out of the picture, wasn't able to track her down. Well, for some reason, one of Tiffany's friends told Kenny the name of the apartment complex she lived in. So he went to the apartment complex, found her car and sat in his car for days waiting for her to leave her apartment. So that's how he got back into her life again. Now I look back with such dread because 
I didn't know any of this at the time. I thought she just wanted to be back with Kenny. And I'm like, we went through the hassle of bringing you all the way from Vegas and getting you back in school here in Texas and getting your own apartment and now you're back with him. You know, fellas, what I didn't realize is that I was victim blaming. Every time I said to my daughter, he's a jerk, why are you with him? He's an ass, break up with him. I was victim blaming. From the time my daughters were in middle school, they kept diaries. And the rule between the girls was only each other would read each other's diary. So when Tiffany was murdered, her sister Becky inherited her diary. And Becky said to me one day, Mom, I'm going to share one entry with you and one entry only. And I said, okay, baby, what, what's up? Apparently, Tiffany had written in her diary that every single day, Kenny told her that if she ever leaves him, he will kill her. And if he can't find her, he will kill her mom and her dad because he knows where they live. So this whole time, you know, and I tell people it, it's hard because you look at a victim and you go, man, well, get out, just leave, you know. It's not that easy. They invade every aspect of your life. The job Tiffany worked at in Vegas, Kenny somehow got in and befriended the owner of the business and became that guy's personal trainer. They were great buds. They went and had beer together. They worked out together. So Tiffany had no one to turn to at her work. She had no one to turn to at her school. Her family wasn't there. You know, it's, it's just baffling how in-depth and psychological this whole dating and domestic violence thing goes. Was this always very intentional on Kenny's part? To be abusive? Yeah. Like, and like from the beginning too, like, I know it might be, sound like a silly question because of everything that happened. No, it doesn't. I guess I'm just curious how that started. Did he know what he was doing? Okay. That's a very, very good question. Actually, Tim, like how does someone become that? How does someone get that way? Well, one thing is it is perpetuated through families. And I will tell you that According to what he told Tiffany, he had a very abusive childhood. Um, when Kenny was about four or five years old, his dad brought him home from kindergarten or whatever, and his 12-year-old sister had hung herself and was hanging in the living room when they walked in the door. Additionally, he had told, whether this is true or not, I don't know, but something happened in his childhood. Um, he also told Tiffany that uh, his father would hold a gun to his head to make sure he finished his homework. So obviously that is very abnormal upbringing. And uh, uh, this kind of abuse is not talked about because people are embarrassed, whether it's domestic violence, dating violence, sexual assault, all these type of abuses are humiliating to the victim, and so they don't talk about it. And so, but part of me believes that, you know, everybody has choices to make. And in the process of giving presentations at universities and high schools, and, you know, honestly, a lot of people come up afterwards and share their stories, including the academic, the, the teachers and, and um, counselors and, um, you know, principals will share their experiences. So, I don't want anyone to think, well, you have to be stupid to fall in love with someone like this or, you know, you must not be well-educated or you must not be very bright because it happens to anyone. 
but it is perpetuated. However, I, I know several people who have been abused and they didn't grow up to be torturers and murderers. They made the choice that, man, that sucked. I went through that. I'm not going to inflict that on somebody else. So it's, it's not an excuse, but, you know, it does happen. It, it does perpetuate. So doing things like this, being on your show, you guys allowing this conversation to take place does nothing but help because it lets people out there know, one, you're not alone, two, you're not stupid, and three, there is help. There are things you can do to be safe while you're in this situation until you get out of it and how to leave safely. And I will say that the most dangerous time in a dating or domestic violence relationship is not necessarily when you're in the relationship. It's when you're leaving or you've already left because these relationships are all about power and control. And so when the abuser feels like they've lost control of that victim, that's when they go into panic mode. Um, I liken abusers to parasites, and I don't say that to be ugly. I mean that literally. A parasite will literally latch onto its host to get what it needs, what it wants to survive. So too with human abusers. They will do whatever it takes to keep control of that victim because they feel that's what they need to survive. It's not an emotional thing. There is, it's not a love thing. Love does not act like that. It's power and control. I have audio of him teaching another young man how to fight. And in the background, I have playing audio from a voicemail that Kenny had left Tiffany on her phone. And he's crying and whining. And please don't leave me. I love you so much. Please don't do this to me. You're hurting me. Why are you doing this to me? You know, it's all about me, me, me. There's no um, taking responsibility for his actions like, you know, sorry I gave you a black eye that one time or, you know, and that's another story. Man, and here, here's one I have to tell you really quickly. One time, Tiffany, we were very close. We were connected at the hip, really. There were times I forgot where I left off and Tiffany began. We just thought so much alike. But she said to me, Mom, why don't you come with me? Um, there's a... A club I want to go to. It's a comedy club. It's downtown. I'm going with so and so, my girlfriend. Why don't you come? And I said, sure, I'll be designated driver. Let's go. So we went, and then we ended up going to another place called Maggie Maze. It's like upstairs, it's an open air room. You know, you can look at the stars. There's a guy in the corner playing his guitar. People are talking, and all of a sudden I look over, 
and Kenny's there. And he's grabbed Tiffany by the arm and he's dragging her down the stairs down to 6th Street. And so I'm like, oh, hell no. And I'm, I'm, I run after them. I get in front of Kenny and I'm pushing on his chest. Stop, it's girls' night out. What are you doing? You're not supposed to be here, blah, blah, blah. Well, unbeknownst to me, over my shoulder, um, there are police officers there. And Kenny leans over and says, she's assaulting me. And I was pushing on him. Stop it. Let her go. Well, the officers detained me. And I said, look, you don't understand. That's my daughter. It's girls' night out. He's grabbed her by the army, dragged her out of the club. Give us your ID. Please, can someone go after them? He's dragged her off. Give us your ID. So I gave my ID. I explained again what's happening. This is who I am. Well, in the meantime, Tiffany's friend who was with us continued to run after Kenny and Tiffany and the direction he was dragging her. Now, she um, was drinking and had foul language and was yelling at the cops, you so-and-sos, go do something, go help her. So um, because she was belligerent, they handcuffed her and made her sit down. So in the meantime, the officer I was speaking to said, okay, we'll let you go, you know, we understand, whatever. So I go running in the direction where my daughter was dragged off at, and my phone rings, and it's Tiffany's friend, and she says, help, I'm being arrested, I'm in the alley, and the phone goes dead. What alley? I don't know. I'm, I'm go headed still in the direction. I, I see her down an alley, and they've got her sitting on the curb, and she's been handcuffed, and I explain to the officers, this is who I am. This is my daughter's friend. Abuser, dragged my daughter off, so they let her go. And I said, well, by now he's gone. What do we do? I need to go to his apartment. He's probably taken her there. And they said to me, ma'am, if you go to his apartment, we will arrest you because we saw you assaulting him. So I'm like, you have got to be kidding me. Can you guys go? Well, we have no reason to believe that he's done anything wrong. Again, we saw you, and, you know, so it's like, I, it was a, an incredibly sleepless night. Um, I'm going to be honest with you here, fellas. As a mama bear wanting to protect your, your daughter, I, I called a friend of mine who's 6'6", 320, is a volunteer fireman, big fella and I said look this is what just happened man and I need some help police won't help me I can't do it on my own what can you do and he said to me yeah I've got some informants I can take down there and we can do horrible stuff to him but what you have to remember is what we do to him he will take out on her if, if Tiffany's not ready to leave him he will build himself back up by smashing her down. So talk about feeling helpless. It was horrible. Wow. Now here's, here's the key. The next morning, I met Tiffany at her work. And I said to her, Tiffany, when he grabbed you by the arm, you just kind of put your head down and went with him. Why weren't you like struggling to get away? Again, I'm blaming her. She said to me, Mom, Kenny told me that you were drunk and that he came to save me and drive me home because you were going to try to drunk drive me home. I said, Tiffany, if I was drunk, would the officers have released me? Would they have released your friends to my custody? I, he's lying to you. But somehow 
Tiffany said she had blacked out and just kind of didn't know and just kind of went with Kenny because she thought that was the right thing to do. Part of me feels like the reason she did that is because he was so abusive that she knew what she was in for. She just kind of went in survival mode and just walked with him. But imagine being out with your best friend and your mother and your abuser comes and grabs you and takes you away in front of the police and no one does anything. That is a horrible story. Just to vent real quick, this isn't a question that needs an answer, but like, why is it so hard for someone who's upholding the law to just acknowledge somebody as a human being and not like something that they have to check a box on when they do the report later on? We have no reason to go there. What do you mean you have no reason to go there? I'm her mom, and, I, and I'm telling you, you need to do this. Like, what reason do you need? Like, why do we... Maybe I've watched too many movies, but why does it have to be like such a black and white? Well, I need to see him hit her. Yeah, exactly. I'm frustrated sitting here years later. I can't even imagine the I I wouldn't even been able to function. I don't even know how you functioned. I didn't sleep that night. I just, you know, and and the horrible thing is it's like even if you have a shred of a thought that something bad could happen to this young lady, why wouldn't you go knock on the door and just say, hi, are you okay? What's go you know, go to his apartment. Nothing. Come on. Like su suggest to you, well, if you were to tell me you wanted a wellness check on my, on your daughter or him, maybe I could, and you know, encourage you to do something that would give them reason to go. But instead it's just, you know, they got a bunch of drunk people out on, you know, on sixth street. And it's like, you're just another scene that they're just kind of filing away. Very frustrating. Uh, if you don't mind, uh, you had said the comments that you had been making in retrospect are victim. It, it was it was victim blaming. And I would love to have you kind of open that up a little more, because what you're doing and describing all of this is breaking it down to this like minutia that really needs to be broken down, because I think that's what people need to build off of. You know, they need to see it all broken down and then build off of it. So. The grooming is so gradual and the yeah. and the victim blaming and I'm doing air quotes is like not you intentionally victim blaming. It's you thinking you're giving advice. It's you thinking right. like it's logical advice. Can you break down those two things a little bit more for me or for the listeners? Sure. Um, I'll tell you this. I'll start by saying that everyone who knew Kenny loved him. Kenny's boss was interviewed by police after Tiffany's murder. And the boss said, not only is he a great employee, he gets here early every day, he stays late, he's one of my best guys, I can't believe he would do something, no, he, I can't believe he would do something like this. Um, the neighbors in his apartment complex thought he was a fabulous guy, he walks his dog, he's so nice. And so what people don't realize, and what I didn't realize, was how horrible things were behind closed doors. It wasn't until after Tiffany's murder that I got a better look at what was happening in Tiffany's life because I had gotten all of Tiffany's friends together and her father and a couple of her neighbors, some friends of hers at school, and I had, I, we made a small documentary and I said, look, I don't know what happened here but let's talk about this and how did we all not know how bad this was? How did we all not know what was going down? And it turns out what happened was, I call it 
Tiffany throwing out crumbs, like Hansel and Gretel, just making a little trail of crumbs. She would tell one small thing to one person, one small thing to someone else, one small thing to someone else. And none of us had the full picture of what was going on. In fact, I remember one time Tiffany telling me, this was early on, that she had gone to a movie theater with Kenny and some of his friends and some of her friends. And Kenny and his friends got in a fight with some other guys. And when Kenny went to punch some other guy, he cocked me with his elbow on a guy, I have this black guy. So if you see me, you need to know that's what happened. And I was like, well, what the heck? You know, maybe you shouldn't be hanging out with this Kenny guy. Why is he punching people? You know, whatever. But, you know, subsequent to that, it turned out that he had literally punched her in the face. It wasn't some accidental thing. So I'm sorry. I'm not sure I was answering your question. What can you refresh your question to me? You were answering the questions. Just, yeah, just kind of speaking about like these moments that happen so gradually is not the right word to use, but it's subtly. Subtly. Yeah. Yeah. It's these subtle moments. So it never feels like something serious is. Yes. Like, quote serious is, is actually happening. It feels like isolated, subtle moments that you don't recognize right away. But when you take the, the, the step yeah. back and you see it as a whole, yes. then it's like, yes. this has been a design from the beginning. Yes. It was interesting because Tim had, had the same question earlier when he asked, like, was this intentional? Yeah. It's such a crazy concept to people who don't intentionally manipulate other people to think that this could be started intentionally. I'm I'm right. seeking out someone to intentionally groom and for whatever purpose that is for me, whether it's power, is it gradual for that person too to see that? They're able to do this. And then it's like all of these moments leading up to the, the most tragic event. It is. You know, what most people don't realize is that, or when you talk to people about dating and domestic violence, the first thing they think is the bloody nose, the broken bone, you know, the black eye. And what you're saying is correct. It's not known how these little sliver of things happen and they get greater and greater. Part of what an abuser does in grooming their victim is make the victim feel like, one, this is what you deserve. Two, this is how I love you and you love me, so this is how I'm going to love you back and this is the right thing. And a lot of that is called gaslighting. Gaslighting is really confusing the victim and saying to them, well, you did this. Don't you remember doing this? I was just reacting to what you did. And, you know, just making the victim very confused. And oftentimes a victim will, six months, a year, two years in, think to themselves, how did I get here? Like, I'm a strong, independent human. And th this, this happens to men, to women, to straight, gay, bi. No one group holds a monopoly on this. This kind of violence happens in every kind of situation. But people do. They find themselves going, you know, like Tiffany was head cheerleader. She was president of the National Honor Society. She was gregarious and outgoing and well-spoken. And, you know, I, I know at some point she must have been thinking, how, how did I get myself into this? And at one point I had said to Tiffany, maybe you need to go to talk to someone at the women's shelter. Just find out if, if you are in an abusive situation. Maybe you're not. Maybe you are. And her response to me was, Mom, the women's shelter is for people who have no means. I have means. And so she wouldn't go. 
she did get herself um, a psychologist who um, was not trained in dating and domestic violence. And so I'm not sure what all that person told Tiffany, but she only went once or twice and that was it. But, you know, it is, it's, it's just a very strange thing. And I, I think, I don't want to say that abusers get off on being mean, but I'll go back to the analogy of the parasite. It's like they get off controlling their victim and then the victim maybe learns that trick and doesn't fall for it anymore. So now they need to come up with something new and it's a new challenge. And then they can control their victim with this new way of doing things. And maybe that wears off or that isn't as effective anymore. It doesn't make him feel powerful because it's all about power and control. So then they come up with something else. And so over time, it does, it gets worse and worse and worse. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. Part of my nonprofit, which is called LOVE, LOVE is an acronym for Leaving Out Violence Everywhere. Um, for a number of years, I helped victims escape their abusers. Even at one point, I had my full disguise, if you'll say. Yeah, that's my logo. The purple is the awareness color for dating and domestic violence, and the teal is sexual assault. But through my nonprofit, um, I was able to raise some funds. And I, uh, the worst case I ever heard of was one out of state. And I'm so protective of my victims. I won't even tell you what state I went to. But I remember landing at the airport and thinking in my head, my God, am I really doing this? Like, this is really scary. But I knew, I knew that this victim was not going to survive two days. She was not. The person that put her in touch with me, she would call me in between her abuser being home. He would leave to buy a pack of cigarettes or something, and she'd call me and say, this is what he's done. This is what, this is, she had three kids. This is what he's doing now. And the last thing he said to her, I had just bought my ticket to fly out on the next flight to go and help this woman leave. She was crying hysterically and said, he knocked me to the ground and called my two-year-old over, and he held a, a knife to my throat and said, say goodbye to your mom, because I'm going to kill her. And then he cut her just enough to need a few stitches, threw the knife down and left. And so that's when she was able to call me and say, this is what just happened. So the progression over the previous three days led me to believe it's getting worse and where he's not, she's, she's not going to live. So I jumped on a plane. So I'm not looking like me. And before I left, I called local law enforcement. It was the sheriff's department in her community. I said, this is who I am. This is my nonprofit. I'm coming. I could use your help. This is the address. And they were really cool. They said, call us when you get here and we will accompany you. So we waited and I asked her on the last time we spoke, when you have time, when you can, when he's not around, let me know when it's time to come. 
because my fear was if a law enforcement car pulls up and people are outside, he's going to kill somebody on his way out or something. So to me, it was imperative he not be home when we come. She had used some app to get through to me to say he just left, he's gone. So myself and the sheriff, uh, I had said to her, do not exit the house until we arrive. But the minute we pulled up, man, she must have been looking out the window. She's got one baby in her arms, the two-year-old by the hand, the eight-year-old running after, and I had rented a van. And the night before I left, I had bought everything they would need, pajamas, clothes, toothbrush, toothpaste, hairbrush, you know, it, all, everything I thought they could need in a backpack because I knew they would be leaving with nothing but the shirts on their back. So that, that was my most scary rescue. And, and the reason that one was most scary was not because I saw the guy or he was home when I got her, but the sheriff agreed to follow us until we were out of the county. But it was a long drive back. Turns out this guy was a, um, what are they called? The Bloods and the Crips. He was a blood, a leader in the, the Bloods. And her phone, I had her throw out the window. I had her a prepaid phone. She called and told his parole officer, this is what's happened. He's been abusing me. And you know, this is my phone number. If he's coming after me or whatever, please let me know. So the parole officer called her back with an informant in his office and put the informant on speakerphone. And what the informant told the victim was, so-and-so has put out a SOS on you. And she's like, what, what's an SOS? And the informant said, shoot on sight. So apparently, all throughout all of these bloods, her picture was put out to all of them with a shoot-on-sight deal. I don't know what you call that. It's not a warning. but So I'm in a panic now. Great, I'm with her. So we're all, everybody's going to get shot. So we, we took a lot of back roads. We took our time. You know, I kept thinking to myself, if I was after someone, what would I do? So, you know, she had a friend um, here in Texas, which is who I was going to take her to. And I made sure, has your boyfriend ever met, talked to, heard, seen from, known this person I'm taking you to in Texas? And she said, no, I served with her in the military. And I only contacted her recently through a friend's phone. So there's no getting her back to me type of thing. So that's what I did. I, I took her to this individual's home. We didn't meet at the individual's home. We met at a park just to be extra safe. You know, if someone was following someone, we met in a public area. But, you know, it's not easy. Um, and I will tell you this much, which you're going to find incredibly heartbreaking, but I was prepared for as much as I could be. She ended up going back to him. And as I mentioned earlier, victims leave their abusers anywhere from 7 to 12 times before it's a permanent breakup. And there's reasons for that. You know, they, they love these individuals. And a lot of these victims think, I can help this person. I'm the only one that loves them. They have them convinced. You're the only one that loves me. Everyone else has bailed on me in my life. You know, I need you. I love, you know. And so she did with her three children. She, she went back. But that was pretty scary.
And the stories you hear from some of these victims of the things that they have been through are unimaginable, unimaginable, the things that they go through with these abusers. You can't even think up something this bad. I couldn't, but you do what you can. It's interesting that you just said you do what you can, because my next comment was going to be how above and beyond you do, you just went with like flying out there and trying to take a person physically from that situation. And we have a lot of people come on who are parts of nonprofits. And I mean, there's no one that I've met that's ever been in that position to have the opportunity to go and, 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 and bring somebody out of that type of dangerous, like volatile situation. Yeah. You know, for me, it's, I, I couldn't help my daughter, Lance and Tim. I learned so much subsequent to her murder that that's one of the reasons I got involved in the Jason Landry missing persons case. I couldn't help my daughter. Maybe I can help another family with their situation with their son. I couldn't help my daughter being abused. I couldn't get her away from Kenny. Maybe I can help someone else live another day have their children live another day. So for me, you know, I people close to me say, why do you give presentations on this domestic violence thing? Why do you go, why do you keep yourself in this domestic violence thing? Doesn't it keep you in like a negative light? And my response is no. For me, it's healing knowing that I could possibly be helping someone who would otherwise be murdered. You know, what, what greater thing in life is there than life, than helping someone else possibly get away from the misery they've been living in for years. Can't always help them. All I can do is what I can do. What you're saying tonight to us is very impactful, and I'm sure some of the folks that you've spoken to at schools and other um, public speakings, like they they are going to take your words with them because it's it's such a, a big thing that a lot of people don't talk about or know anything about and me included so yeah I'm, I'm really glad you're here sharing this with our listeners thank you for letting me and you know if you don't mind feel free to put my email out there if anybody has questions or you know we can talk further about how to be safe while you're planning to leave um, how to be safe when you're leaving and things like that I'm I'm happy to help talk to anyone that might need help. So, and even if the people listening aren't the ones that need help, by them hearing what we're talking about tonight, if they know of someone, and chances are they do, one in three women will be assaulted in their lifetime and one in five men will be, um, chances are you know someone who is in this type of situation. And really those numbers were skewed because people don't talk about it. And when there are murders that are just listed as murders. They're not listed as a dating or domestic violence murder. So, you know, one in three or one in five is, and most men will not report dating and domestic violence because they, they're ashamed. So anyway, chances are people listening do know someone who's in this type of situation. I can't imagine how frustrating this position um, would be for, and was for you. Um, as, as Tiffany's mom, is there some general advice that you can give? Is there, is there one place to go? Well, um, yeah, thank you for asking that. If 
you think you might be in a violent relationship if you're at the beginning stages, things are kind of not feeling right, listen to that inner voice, you have it for a reason. Um, don't ignore the awkward, gee, that was kind of rude, that was kind of mean type of situation. Your inner voice is there for a reason. The other thing is always have an emergency code word or code phrase with the people most dear and closest to you in your lives. Not a friend here and there or someone you went to school with or something, but the people you would trust with your life. And what that word or phrase means is the shit has hit the fan over here and my abuser's listening and I can't tell you what's really happening, but send the troops, I need help. Another thing victims can do if they're in an abusive situation um, and are not in a position or are not ready yet to leave is if you are being abused, one way to help keep yourself with minimal pain, damage, destruction of your body, whatever, is to curl yourself up into a ball. Make yourself as small as possible. If you are in a room in the kitchen where there's knives, if you're in the garage where there's hammers, try and move things to an area, which anything can be used as a weapon, but try to move yourself to an area where there are less harmful objects. Um, if you can, have a go bag packed and hide this bag. In the bag should be things like a copy of your driver's license, your birth certificate, some cash, your children's birth certificates, a written list of phone numbers. If your phone is taken away, I say get a um, one of those prepaid phones, but you know, if your abuser takes your phone and, and you can't call for help, then where are you? So if you've got the phone numbers written down and you've got a prepaid phone or something now, because we all do speed dial, right? We all look for the person's name and hit go. So we don't anymore memorize phone numbers. So these are some of the things that you can do to help keep yourself safe, to be prepared. Find a public place where you know a lot of people will be either day or night. During the day, is there a park close by where you can run to and be where a lot of people are for safety? Is there a restaurant that's open late? Find out in your area where you reside the fastest point from A to B to get to somewhere safe where other people will be. Is there a neighbor that you trust that you can run to a neighbor's house? So things like this, planning in advance. No one knows your abuser and what they're capable of like you do. So if someone tells you, leave right now, you need to go now. No, you know when the right time is and you know where to go. So just think about these things, what you need to do if things get really hairy and you need to jump out the window right now. What do you need to do and what do you have to be prepared to do that? Great. I mean, it's it's really rare when you have somebody break it down like that into the fine details, those steps that you need to do. And I think you nailed it. I mean, you did nail it when you said the first thing you need to do is listen to your inner voice. We always do that with every decision we ever make in our lives. And we always look back and we're like, oh, I knew it should have been this or this. Like from the most simple choice that you make and you realize oh, I made the wrong choice. My gut was telling me one thing. For whatever reason, I did the opposite. I know yeah. I shouldn't have done that. I think that's so important. And I just wanted to like emphasize that as we wrap this up. Like that piece of advice you gave, the first thing is to listen to your inner voice. If something's off 
And then you wrapped it up by saying, you know, your abuser better than anybody else. And if you know something's off, something's off. Yeah. And you're not being paranoid by m- making a go bag, by getting, you know, figuring yeah. out your route out of there. High, you know, getting getting things that could be used as serious weapons away from the situation. Like that's not being paranoid. That's you surviving. So that's right. Surviving. Well done. Thank you. Yeah, it is. It's surviving. It's all about survival. Again, if anyone has questions, please, you know, email me or, you know, feel free to reach out. Um, yeah, I can help you through my nonprofit. I think one thing that's so startling to me is how quickly things can change um, for the worse. Right. That's because it's so subtle and gradual leading up to that. And no one saw it. No one saw it because it lasted so long and it just became normal. Then all of a sudden it's like, oh, my. Like then it's, you know, feels like zero to 60. Yes, it does. Yeah, it does. And, and, you know, the victims oftentimes feel no one's going to believe me because everybody loves this person. They don't see what happens behind closed doors. They don't know what this person's capable of and what they do to me when no one's looking. And the abuser's probably telling them no one's going to believe you anyway. And they've gaslit them into thinking that. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, we have to have you back on. Oh, thank you for having me. You know, I, I appreciate you helping spread the word. And, you know, this kind of situation is hidden under a rock. Let's shine a light on it. And you guys are helping do that. Thank you.